Welcome to MindWorks. This is your host, Danielle Servity. Artificial intelligence is making its way into more environments, workplaces, and missions in our lives. But if a key goal of AI is to augment and improve how we humans perform our jobs, how are we preparing for this new reality? Specifically, what sort of training will be needed for both sides, humans and artificial intelligences, to ensure that these new hybrid human AI systems and human AI teams could work optimally together? I had a chance to explore this fundamental question with three experts at the end of last year in a panel discussion at a conference called ITSIC, a very large training, simulation, and education conference. And like all great conversation, it left me wanting to know more. So we are taking a break this week from our MindWork series on leadership because the opportunity arose to continue that discussion with my three very special guests. Dr. Mike Venland is the CEO of Sortec, which develops human-centered AI solutions for the military's toughest problems. Mike has been very passionate about AI since he purchased his first computer more than 35 years ago, telling his parents that he was going to make the computer think. Imagine that. Mike has published widely in academic journals and conferences, and is the founding organizer of the AAAI Conference on Artificial Intelligence and Interactive Digital Entertainment. My second guest is Dr. Greg Zacharias. Dr. Zacharias serves currently as Director of Federal Solutions at Pasteur Labs, a company that was founded to develop and apply simulation intelligence in today's large-scale, complex problems. He recently retired from government service as a chief scientist for the Department of Defense Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. He also served as chief scientist of the U.S. Air Force, creating a long-term roadmap for developing AI-enabled Air Force systems. He entered government service after co-founding and leading for many years Charles River Analytics, an award-winning R&D small business focused on integrating AI with human systems engineering. And third is Dr. Fred Diedrich, who is making a return appearance on MindWorks. He's currently an independent senior consultant with more than 20 years of experience improving human performance in a range of government sponsors, including the Army Research Institute, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, the Office of Naval Research, and more. He was previously the CEO of Milcord, as well as president and my dear colleague at Aptima Incorporated. Welcome, Mike, Greg, and Fred. So before we take a deeper dive into this nature of human-AI collaboration, what happens if we don't take into account the human side of the equation? In a sense that many folks in our audience say, oh, I thought the podcast was about AI. And here is a computer science and an aerospace engineer and the psychologist coming in and telling me, oh, we need to take into account that human part of the system. What happens if we don't? What happens if we ignore that part? And as we are flooded right now with all kinds of claims about AI, we let AI be AI. What are the dangers of doing that? Or should we do that? I'll start here. One big danger that I think about is the possibility that we spend a lot of money and time and smart people's energy building AI systems that never get used, even if they're actually useful systems. And I think this is one of the key distinctions that I think a lot about. Just because an AI system is useful, it could help someone do a job. That doesn't mean that that person will use that system. I know I have built systems, both AI systems and training systems, that were proven to be effective, but for a variety of reasons, some cosmetic, some deeper, they didn't pass the human sniff test. And so they didn't go into use. And so there's a lot of potential to build AI systems that could be very useful. That potential won't be realized unless we're also thinking about how to make sure these systems meet the acceptance criteria of the users and they go from being useful systems to becoming used systems. And so that distinction between a useful system and a used system and the fact that becoming a used system puts additional requirements on the underlying AI, I think is really important and something that, that should get more attention. 
Greg, Fred, do you want to add to that question about doomsday that will happen if we let AI be AI and we don't take into account humans? Yeah, well, there's many ways to get to doomsday. But yeah, no, I think it's a great point about being useful and usable. And I think I might only add to that, that, you know, implicit in that is that it's hard to imagine that in military operations, for instance, humans won't be involved. So in other words, the AI will be part of a team explicitly or implicitly. And so the effects of that team are going to be what matters. And so it's hard for me to even begin to think about why we wouldn't consider the AI in that larger context. If I could give you an episode from my past to illustrate what happens when you don't consider this. So as a young engineer, I got to work on the space shuttle working on an autopilot that went from Mach 28 down to Mach 5 hypersonics, huge range in altitudes and so forth. And I designed this incredible, wonderful system that flew, you know, followed the guidance commands and did all these wonderful things, uh, saved thousands of pounds of extra fuel and so forth, got it in the simulator and got the astronauts test fly it. And every single one of them hated it. And they said, this doesn't fly like an airplane. And I kept telling them, well, it's, it's not an airplane, you know, it's a blunt body doing a re-entry, you know. Anyway, it ended up being a failure in terms of acceptance by the pilot who was interacting with it, the set of pilots that would interact with it. It was not a case of AI, but it was a case of engineering and just did not fit the case of what they want to do. I might add, as a postscript, I've talked to a bunch of astronauts that actually flew the re-entry system that wasn't mine. And they never touched the stick, actually. They just let the thing go automatically. So mine would have survived the sniff test. But I learned from that way back when that you just can't take the human out of the loop in these cases. Yes, thank you. So there is a human in the loop, on the loop. There is a lot of in the literature right now to understand in those complex systems where the human should be, especially when we have, and you make the distinction, uh, Greg, about even if it's not AI, those complex systems that have human in it need to model the human and take the human into account to be not only accepted, but also eventually maybe to behave optimally. But there is a debate, and I don't know if it's a semantic debate, it's a real debate that has implication about how do we approach the design of an AI that augments the human work, doesn't replace it? We'll talk about that notion a little later in the podcast. But should we approach the design of the system, of the human system that is augmented by a capability that is AI-based as a tool or as a teammate? Is that just a semantic discussion or is that a real discussion that has implication for design? wants to take that, the teammate versus tool aspect, specifically about AI, because AI has the capacity of learning and adapting and changing. And it's very natural for us humans to think of it as a teammate, like a human teammate will adapt and change and evolve with us. want to take that on. You know, my first thought there is we, the designers of the system, don't always get to pick. The users are going to relate to what we build in ways that are dependent on how we build it and may not be what we anticipated. And so humans have, you know, millions, tens of millions of years of experience working with other humans. And there's a lot of deep social, but also biological structures in the brain around collaborating with other humans. More recently, humans started working with tools and, you know, whether something is in that like a human category or that like a tool category is a judgment humans make all the time. And once we start building these AI systems that can speak, that can be making decisions, that can be understanding what the human's trying to do and helping, right? It slips closer and closer to that like another human or like another intelligence. And that evokes and activates a whole set of structures in humans about how to work with something. And so some of the promise of AI is that AI can be doing these things, you know, interacting more naturally, making decisions on its own under human's direction. Once you start to take advantage of that promise, you inevitably slip out of the tool category and into the, you know, I'll call it another intelligence category. And then that brings with it a whole set of expectations and assumptions and biases that you need to take into account. 
You get into things like the uncanny valley, whether it's the physical manifestation uncanny valley of how a figure looks or the kind of decision-making uncanny valley of, you know, hey, this is acting kind of like a person, but not really like a person. So I think it's inevitable as we build towards what AI can do that we're going to start to be in this gray area between teammate and tool. And that means we need to take the teammate side of that seriously. I'll pick up on something you said and ask a question of Greg. In the example that you gave previously about your design for the shuttle reentry system, would the kind of decision of design decision you would have made if that the control system, et cetera, was actually an artificial intelligence that had the capacity to adapt basically to the astronaut or to the user. Is there just a quantitative difference here in terms of the computational ability of one system versus another, or there's really a qualitative system in the way that Mike described? So it was not just a tool for enabling the reentry, it was also some kind of collaborative teammate that will be given to the astronaut. Would that have been different? Yeah, I think quite different. I think the problem would be you would like the autopilot or the AI to recognize that the pilot was frustrated with the response of the aircraft. And maybe a pilot or a co-pilot, maybe humans might have done that. And then the second part would have been much easier to actually adapt the control laws, which is what North American Rockwell did. They changed the control laws so that the pilot would make it feel like it was an airplane. It cost an extra $60 million to launch in fuel costs, but that was a trade-off they made. To do that in real time would have been maybe doable, I guess, these days, not back then, obviously, but that would be a good teammate's response to help the person flying the aircraft, I agree. So that's a meta-model development by the AI of your teammates. Talking about that, thank you for that last point. And that's really a question for you, Fred. As the developmental psychologist, the AI develop, and to do that, you're going to try to embed or give the AI some kind of an internal model of representation of the human it is designed to support. Is that possible? Is that something you think about as a person that cares about skill acquisition and other things like that? It's a good question and in many ways gets to the heart of the matter. It's certainly the case that in order to do the kind of intelligent activity that Greg was just outlining, you will need to have within the AI some model of the human. And in many ways, this falls under the umbrella of sort of theory of mind. That is, that the AI needs to have a theory of mind of its humans. And the humans, I think, need to have a theory of mind of their AI, right? So that goes both ways. And that kind of understanding will enable, hopefully, the kinds of performance gains that Greg was just alluding to. One important thing to think about, though, is that if we are assuming that the AI evolves over time, and it doesn't have to be the case, but let's make that assumption in this case, and let's assume that the humans evolve over time, then you know that theory of mind is not static. And so the idea here is that you can't just program something in that we know that Daniel is going to behave in the following way because Daniel might change. And I think that that makes this kind of a hard problem. I want to go back to something you said, Mike, earlier about this notion about supporting decisions and knowing where the decision is being made. Should the locus of decision in a system that has both human, say one human, one AI, or multiple humans, multiple AI, should the locus of decision be always with the human side? Or are you ready to accept, as a scientist, the fact that sometimes the locus of decision should shift? to the AI side, and the human should remain kind of an observer of that decision being made. With respect, I'm going to say that's the wrong way to ask the question. You know, in my mind, there's a distinction between a decision and a goal, right? So I believe the locus of the goal that the human AI team are pursuing should remain with the human, right? The human should set the goal, and then it's the job of the AI and human together to make decisions to pursue that goal. The AI, I believe, will be inevitably making decisions without consulting with the human, whether it's because it's a domain where there isn't time to do so. You get into some elements of a cyber domain and, you know, the human just can't be making decisions fast enough. So the AI has to be making decisions without consulting the human. 
Maybe there are communication constraints, other reasons why the AI can't consult the human. What's important is that the AI and the human be working towards the same goal, right? So I would say when you're thinking about who's setting the goal, the locus of defining the goal needs to rest with the human. The decisions to pursue that goal, some of those the AI can be making on its own, some of those the AI can be consulting with the human. But what's really important is making sure that both sides of this team are working towards the same goal. And that gets a little bit into what we were just talking about with theory of mind, right? If the AI has some sort of goal that is learned by the system that's not represented in a way that a human can inspect, then you got some questions. You don't really know what goal the AI is working towards if it can't say, here's a human understandable representation of the goal I think we're working towards. When I talk about the underlying algorithmic constraints that you need to build an AI that is usable by humans, that you know, explicit representation of a goal that a human can inspect and confirm is right is one of the kinds of things I think about. Good. You anticipated my other question, which would have been the right question this time, which is, how do I know that while working with an AI, that the AI is actually listening and understand my goal. All I can observe is basically the outcome of its decisions or its insight, not necessarily an acknowledgement that whatever its recommendation or its decisions are, are compatible with my goal. I think different AI systems differ on that, right? Some, the goal is implicit deep in the system, Others, the goal is explicit and, you know, you can communicate it in English. And there has been lots of research even recently about how do you take the implicit goals and try to extract them from the system and create an explicit representation of them. You know, some of those involve testing the systems. Some of those involve other approaches. I think that's one of the core challenges right now in the AI research behind the field is how do you understand and verify, validate what the goal that these systems are working towards? Even if it's explicitly stated, you know, do you have confidence that this AI is really always working towards that explicitly stated goal? I think this is a little more complex. And I want to take a couple points of my point. I, I think we're thinking of a team of almost equals. And I'll give you a counterexample where you've got the Air Force team of 700,000 people and they're hierarchicalized, right? And I bring to mind Daniel's earlier comment about, you know, a person in the loop and a person on the loop. A few years ago, I proposed we have a person under the loop. And for instance, you may want to have an AI that runs the air operations center telling the pilots what to do. And there's so many levels down in the hierarchy. They're under the loop, basically, of the AI, but they're all part of the same team. So I think that's a dimension that you got to bring into this equation. And I think the other thing Mike already mentioned was speed of response. You want the auto GCAS ground collision avoidance system to take you out of a bad situation. You want it to work in milliseconds time when you're not even paying attention to where the train is or in cyber as well. I hate to say, I think it's an it depends situation where the locus is over. You know, one of the things that the various comments make me think about is that you know, we're dancing around the ideas of constraints. So one of the ways to think about this is to provide some constraint on the way that the system might evolve that lines up with your goals or not. And what I would point out is that we already do this in the following sense. So if you think about commander's intent or an order that specifies, you know, purpose, key, st- key tasks and end state, those things are set up that way intentionally because that brigade and commander, for instance, is giving his intent He's not going to necessarily tell the company commander exactly how to do his job. But what he's doing when he gives intent, purpose, and end state is he's laying out the constraint space while giving flexibility to the entity to realize that. And I suspect some of these ideas that have been pretty well laid out for human teams may, in fact, be informative here, notwithstanding the really good question and point about how do we communicate that, right? So, you know, there may be communication that could even be verbal. There may be some ways to measure certain aspects of actions that tell us something about whether or not we're within that constraint space or not. And that might depend, as Greg said, on the context. I think what fascinates me in the subtext of this decision, we don't have all the words yet. We don't have all the vocabulary necessary to understand this emerging 
interaction, some will say with different intelligences, some other people will even dare say with a new species in our midst. And in a sense, you bring the analogy of management by objectives, what people, at least in the business schools, are studying. They don't use the same terms as in the military, but that notion that you don't micromanage, you just set goals. And we each try to use different analogy, either from control engineering or from team theory, in order to be able to explain that relationship. And I think it's fascinating. I think the, the English language is not rich enough now to have all the words necessary, even the word intelligence. Maybe somebody will come up with a different word to explain what exactly are those systems that we are building. They are certainly not human intelligence. Let's go down a notch for a second. I'm going to ask you to provide for our audience an example you're aware of, either because you participated in or you witnessed it or you investigated it. A case in which there was a successful or there is a successful example in which AI and humans have learned to work together, have been a successful design, basically, of this human AI system. I also would love to hear about unsuccessful one, because that's the one we learned the most out, where automation and humans or intelligent automation and humans didn't cooperate the way we expected them to cooperate, maybe leading to an accident or a disaster. So both good and bad examples for our audience. Want to share them? Greg, do you want to kick us off this time? Sure, I'll try. Well, I think the autonomous automobiles are getting to be a successful example. I think they started out with everybody keeping their hands off the wheel and sitting back. There's still instances of it, but I think people are learning on how to interact with them. I think that's going to be a success over time as people learn their limitations. And it goes back to the locus of control. I think most people have control over the mode that that automobile is in rather than the other way around. I do think example of unsuccessful thing, again, it's not, again, not so much AI, but I think AI will be subject to the same kind of poor design, like the case of the Boeing 737 MCAS augmentation system, which was cases of expanding this flight envelope where it shouldn't be, having a flight critical system dependent on a single sensor. And then as Fred can dive into not providing adequate training to the pilots that we're supposed to be flying at, in fact, hiding the existence of the system from them, which is a really egregious kind of case. And certainly it could have been an AI system doing all this too. So I think that's just bad engineering design. Over to you, Fred. Thanks. Those are great examples. And, you know, you might say that in the case of the aircraft, the pilots who were not trained didn't have a good theory of mind of the automation which speaks back to something we talked about a moment ago. So it's a great point. Color commentary on autonomous cars. You know, I, I think based on what I observe in Boston on a regular basis, like the bar is very low. And so what we might call success can be easily achieved, potentially. Hard engineering notwithstanding. You know, I think that there's so many great examples, right? And, you know, I'll throw out like a really simple one that I think everybody can relate to. You know, every weekend on Saturday morning, you know, I hop in my car and I put my phone into the car and the car pops up a map that's taking me to the supermarket, right? And so, you know, my iPhone here has learned that I go to the supermarket on Saturday morning. And, you know, it's mostly right. Sometimes I'm not going to the supermarket, so sometimes it's wrong. But, you know, there you go. I don't know if it really helps me or not, because I kind of know how to get to the supermarket. That's maybe another question about how useful it is, but it works in a sense. Another example that I'll throw out that's, you know, received a more popular attention in the media was the, you know, idea of AI and candidate screening or mortgage lending practices and whether or not the AI might reflect um, inherent biases that it learns. I think that's a particularly interesting point because it raises questions about whether or not, well, let me put it this way, what the AI might be telling us about us, which raises some interesting questions. But there are a couple of examples. So, Mike, anything else you want to chuck in? Yeah. So when I think about the big successful AI systems, you know, I think about things like the Google search engine, spam filtering and detection in, in email systems, recommendation systems for things like what movie you should watch given the movies or, you know, what you should buy on a website given the things you bought, right? What's interesting about all those is, you know, it's lots and lots of data a lot of it mined from other human decisions, and it's relatively low stakes kind of decisions, right? It's not the end of the world if a spam email slips through the filter 
or I watch the first 10 minutes of a movie that I don't like and then turn it off. You look at the other side, which have some of the same properties. And one I've seen recently is the example of Zillow, right? Zillow recently invested a lot of money in buying properties based on its AI algorithms estimation of how much those properties would be worth going on the market. That was a much higher stakes kind of example and didn't go well for Zillow. And part of that is I think they were making predictions about an uncertain future that's a little different than making predictions about a more certain like whether this is a spam email or not. So I think there's lots of ways where all of us are using AI every day and you know it's working very effectively. This dips a little bit into one of the jokes within the AI community is that once it starts working and people see it working and understand how it's working, it's no longer AI, right? Then it's just a search algorithm or it's just a spam filter. You know, and AI is always the thing we haven't done yet. So, you know, there are a lot of really positive examples of AI out there, but usually on lower stakes kind of decisions at the moment. I love that comment. I'm going to remember that and reuse that with a proper credit, Mike. Thank you. So because some of those systems that you just described are out there, like the Zillow example, they range from something in which there is no really human intervention in a sense. It's an algorithm that goes out there, makes a decision based on future uncertainty of the market and either succeeds or doesn't succeed in terms of some key performance indices that people calculate, as opposed to one that is much more personalized, much more individualized, like car driving. There are some general behaviors that you would expect. And car driving, when Fred steps into its car, its future semi-autonomous car, and the car will have already an internal model or theory of mind of Fred and will behave accordingly, either by speeding a certain way, driving a certain way, sharing tasks a certain way, etc. On that last category, I wonder if this notion of working with AI is a new competency in the 21st century. It's not like working with a hammer or an Excel spreadsheet, but in and by itself, working with a system that adapts to you, that personalizes its own functioning to you, whether or not it's a new skill. It's a new skill that we have to put much more effort in developing either in the general population or in our schools. I mean, if indeed that report that I mentioned in the introduction is correct, more than 800 million jobs are going to be displaced. doesn't mean they're going to be eliminated, but they're going to change as a result of the introduction of AI, at least change, if not more. Are those new skills? And if these are skills, do we know how to train them? I'll start with you, Fred, because this is really your domain, but I would love to hear also from Mike and Greg about that. Yeah, thank you. I don't think it's that new, but it may be different. And I think early on in the conversation, you know, Mike used the term other intelligences. And so if we think broadly, already today, we all work with other intelligences. And the examples we just went through kind of are on some kind of a continuum from pretty sophisticated to not very sophisticated. And I think that the key from the human perspective is that we must be, quote unquote, adaptable or agile. And a lot of our sponsors talk about this and have talked about it for years. And so I'm not sure if it's a new competency, but it is something that I think will stress the competencies of critical thinking, problem solving, etc. And we need to probably ask whether or not many of our traditional educational programs, whether or not they're in the military, business, or academics, really do indeed rely on and teach those kinds of critical thinking skills that we think they do, and they may not. So maybe it's more of doing what we're supposed to be doing already is maybe the way I'd answer that. Greg and Mike, can you, you want to chime on this one? Are those new skills for humans? I'm going to be a bit of a curmudgeon here and think of, I think, again, going back to this theory of mind, I think we are such a social species. I think we have this theory of mind built in over millions of years that we expect another human to behave kind of like we do. And when we're beset with pathological people or sociopaths, we don't even know how they deal with it. And I think for these systems to be accepted, they're going to have to become more like us rather than us figuring out that hardwiring to deal with it. Now, that's not my curmudgeonly part. What my curmudgeonly part has to do with 
DOD's approach to this. And I have a quote here. It's one of their ethical principles that was kind of designed by the Defense Innovation Board and signed off by whichever SECDEF we had at the time. It's the ethical principle for AI and call for traceability. I'm going to quote this. The department's AI capabilities will be developed and deployed such that relevant personnel, that's the key phrase here, possess an appropriate understanding of the technology, development processes, and operational methods applicable to AI capabilities, including with transparent and auditable methodologies, data sources, and design procedure and documentation. So here I've got a pilot or an army guy firing a smart missile, and they're supposed to know all this stuff. And given that PhD researchers at DeepMind still don't know where some of those go moves came from, we're going to expect some PFC to understand what data set was used to train this and what, what this thing. So I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think really it's going to go the other direction. The demand is going to be, I need systems that believe behave like humans. That's an interesting insight about that. Mike, do you agree? Are we designing AI to our image? I think we are. I think, you know, and Greg said this, right? The key phrase in what he just read was relevant personnel. And I think, you know, how much that pilot or that infantry person at the end of a long chain of system development, what they're the relevant personnel for versus all the others in that chain is going to be very interesting, right? You can't expect a pilot, for example, to know every aspect of the system. And if you're building a system that requires that, you're building the system wrong, I would say. You can leverage the stuff we are all already know about how to work with other humans and take advantage of that. Ideally, and I think this perfect world is not going to exist, but you know, ideally, you could leverage a lot of stuff people already know about how to work with others and not have to require them to learn a whole new skill set. But, you know, that ideal case is I don't think ever going to be 100% achievable. And, you know, the relevant personnel are going to have to learn some new things. The question is, can you keep that to a manageable level given everything else they already need to know to do the job they're relevant for? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about moving towards something that, you know, seems more human-like or is human understandable as a way to kind of deal with this. And, you know, I'd point out that within the currently existing leader requirements model for the Army, one of the attributes we want people to have is interpersonal tact. And the reason why that's in there is in part because you have to know how to adapt to other kinds of folks. So that's not a new attribute. It's an existing attribute. In this case, that interpersonal tact might be with respect to some kind of artificial intelligence. But nevertheless, it's the same problem. And I'd add that what makes interpersonal tact hard is to have that model of the other individual that guides your adaptation towards it, which is really the problem we're talking about here. Yes. I think that to add to that, I can share a personal experience. One of the very first edition of this podcast was actually with an artificial intelligence called Charlie that was developed by uh, one of my teams. And in the process of learning to interview Charlie, I did a lot of this, how do you call that? Interpersonal tact, you know, empathy in the true sense of the word empathy to try to understand the others. It's the same, but it's also fundamentally different. The same way my ability to interview Jennifer or Mary or John is different because I have a different mental model in the sense of each one of these individuals. Then I had Charlie, which is an AI, but my adaptation was different. The way I adapted to Charlie to ask her, that's a she in that case, a question so that she give me a decent answer and not some stupid answer. It's different because you could sense that, that the stuff that was coming back was not human. Sometimes it was brilliant and insightful, even beyond what a human would have answered. And sometimes it was pretty pedestrian. And that kind of variability is not expected from most humans. And I know you're going to make a joke that you know some people like that, but no, we are pretty consistent in a sense. And therefore that interpersonal tact, I think, goes into a Another level of difficulty, let's put it this way, when you deal with artificial intelligence. So, so far we've explored a question about what we call about learning to learn together 
And the together has to do with this notion of teaming, in a sense, with a technology that is intelligent, that is adaptive, that is learning. I want to explore whether or not there is here an opportunity for true synergy or is just, in a sense, a marriage of convenience. It's just something that is out there and we better deal with it because it's inevitable. Or there is something very optimistic about those new possibilities about transforming uh, the very nature of human work, whether it's in the military or in business or in the workplace. So my question for each one of you is, where do you believe are the low-hanging fruit? Where do you believe this notion of really understanding and designing and testing and experimenting with human AI teaming or, or human augmentation with AI, where is it the most promising? Is it in defense, an area that all of us know quite well? Is that in healthcare? Is it in transportation? Perhaps even in education? Can you just speculate about it? But you have to predict the next 10 years, where is that going to make a big difference? Pick one domain and expand on it. Well, I can jump in and, you know, stealing something from Mike. But I think he pointed out something, I think, pretty interesting earlier. I think it was Mike, maybe it was Greg. But there's a difference between sort of high consequence environments and low consequence environments. And so, you know, the example I believe that was used earlier is if Netflix recommends a movie to you and it stinks, so what? So the barrier to entry is very, very low. And I think that's an interesting way to think about it, right, in terms of where you might see the biggest impact, maybe in some areas where even already it's really not that consequential. Now, as we push into the kinds of domains that some of us work in with the defense and stuff like that, it could be you know, very consequential and maybe call for us to be more conservative. The problem with that's going to be that, you know, quote unquote, the enemy will have a vote. And so the timelines of these things may not be fully in our control in the sense that, you know, you may be surprised about where some of the different domains really make a lot of headway out of necessity. I see. And when you say the enemy has a vote, can you expand on that a little bit, what you meant by that? So if we think about, you know, speed of operations being very important, and this is an example that Greg talked about earlier, I would start there. Given the amount of information coming at us, given the speed at which the enemy would be moving, we will be put in a position where we have to be faster and faster, or at least find a way to contend with that. And so that's what I mean by, in this case, the enemy will have a vote, because some of these things may cause us to react in different ways. Greg, Mike, you want to venture a prediction on a domain that you either like or you're familiar with? I'm happy to. So I think consequences, the size of the consequences is really going to be a driver. I think the size of the organization is another driver. I really struggle with what DOD is going to be doing in terms of accepting and bringing in AI. I listened to Eric Schmidt at AFA a couple of days ago. We rate a whole bunch of four stars that were sitting in front of them saying that it's clear that you can't get your bureaucracy to bring in AI directly. So what you've got to do is have a whole bunch of little pockets of 50 people distributed among your 3 million people to do that. And that's happening now. But how that actually gets embedded into larger scale systems is a big question. So I'm saying these are probably not where things are going to happen. I think that they're going to be happening in more individualized, distributed places. And you think about autonomous vehicles, right? I mean, there's one person in their car. There was really no attempt to, to set a network of such cars around them, even though now you have Tesla vehicle A telling vehicle B that there's a pothole somewhere. The networking of this is happening, but that wasn't the initial, certainly wasn't the Dharma challenge at all. It's just a much more simple one v one or one with one team. So I think those kinds of applications are more likely to happen than the large bureaucracy, even though an interoperation center would be hugely improved if we apply some of these approaches to that. So the grave consequences actually is not an acceleration proposition for implementing AI. The bigger the consequences, the more time it will take for AI to be thoughtfully integrated. You're more likely to see it in an individual aircraft than in uh, SAC headquarters in uh, office. I certainly agree that the consequences is going to be a big driver. Another driver I think about is what is the alternative to AI? So you look at something, a domain like transportation, right? The alternative to AI is a human driver. There are millions of human drivers out there in the world. And, you know, the cost of a human driver 
isn't super high. You can look at Uber and say that, you know, Uber is just an automated AI company where they have, you know, a human in the loop doing the job of the eventual future AI. Uber business model maybe works because they can get those human drivers pretty cost effectively. And so in transportation, you need to build an AI that's more cost effective than a human driver. And that's going to be a challenge. Another area I look at is the availability of knowledge. AI systems, they need knowledge, whether it's a big labeled training set they can learn from or a human who can teach them how to do something. The knowledge has to be there. And I think that to me is a real challenge in the defense domain is, you know, we have a lot of doctrine and stuff, but it's very expensive to go out and conduct these large military operations to gather the knowledge. And a lot of this is such a dynamic domain with so much on-the-fly decision-making that I worry about where all that knowledge is going to come from. So then I look at healthcare, right? Healthcare, the alternative is a trained medical professional, which are very expensive to create and in low supply. So the alternative to AI is hard to get. There's a lot of knowledge out there. That's an area that I think is ripe. The challenge, of course, is those are very high consequence decisions. And so the availability of knowledge and the inavailability of a good alternative flies in the face of the fact that it's high consequence decisions. But you know, I think certain areas of healthcare, especially if it's a decision that a human can then check, is an area that I do think is primed for a big impact. Now, if you take impact in a slightly different direction and say, where is the introduction of AI going to have an impact on society? If AI takes over the transportation domain and, you know, tens of millions of people are out of a job as a result of that, every truck driver, every taxi driver are out of a job, that's going to be a huge social problem for the world created by AI. And that's a whole nother area of problem. But I think that's an impact potentially in the negative sense that AI could have that might be very disruptive. That last point, actually, thank you, Mike. And Greg and Fred, because you gave some good examples for the audience to think about their own domain, uh, whether they are teacher or military warfighter, to see, okay, how can AI change my life, change my work? The last sentence that you shared with us is actually where the number one question I'm sure when you guys are lecturing happens the same, the same thing happened. But when I give presentations or lectures about this topic, That's the first question people ask. Is AI going to take over? And we have all kinds of jokes to answer that question, but it is a serious question that's created serious anxiety in some people because the only model they have is the Hollywood model, basically, of the science fiction model of robots taking over, going wild, not, not behaving as expecting, etc. It's not just a question of a replacement. It's an unwanted replacement. And... Talking about that, that brings all kinds of topics, of issues about ethics. What is ethical AI? Not just in terms of the single system, how a single system should behave, fed by the knowledge that we feed it, as you mentioned, Mike, but also, generally speaking, for society. There are some major ethical questions about the design of AI, the introduction of AI, and frankly, the proliferation of AI. Can you comment on the one that worries you the most right now? So for me, it's that social disruption of the wide-scale introduction of AI into a, a certain industry. You know, there are going to be some industries where AI is going to do the job that a lot of people currently do. And that's going to be a, a real challenge. To me, that's the thing that concerns me most in the near term, you know, next 10 or 20 years when I think about AI. We have the legends of John Henry, right? Some guy who, you know, really good at hammering a spike into rock, right? And a machine came in and, and took his job away. That's deep in our folklore. Who is the John Henry of the AI world? So even at the societal level, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to provide a disruption. Fred, Greg, any other ethical worries? I think it's far too early to worry about ethics, frankly. Cases about biased data sets and so forth that we're concerned about with judging people in terms of their credit or their ability to graduate from college, et cetera, et cetera. I think those are easy things to solve. But honestly, 
we're still trying to get these systems to work basically without any ethical constraints. And I feel like we're in the Wright Brothers at Kitty Hawk's stage when someone would tap them on the shoulder and say, so what do you think about incendiary bombing of Tokyo and what your technology is going to afford in the future? Maybe you should get out of this business. I think we're just at the very beginning. And I'm concerned, frankly, from the DOD standpoint of because there's a lot of people working on this problem right now. In fact, it's, it's the policy wonks in DOD that are trying to drive the train of the technologists. I think that's an interesting situation for DOD, frankly. Over. Greg, I don't know if it's just DOD. You're on alma mater. I'm going to out you here as an MIT graduate. There is a the relatively new school of computing at MIT, which is different from the school of engineering has an entire department, actually, an associate dean responsible for societal and ethical consequences of computing in general, let alone AI. And they are teaching the new engineers, the new people coming out of that school about that. They have to take those courses in ethics and societal implications. You're saying the worry is way too academic at this point. Let's just build first and worry about that later. I'm an engineer, so I would build first and see what the capabilities are and then worry about how you control these systems. I just think we're so early on. It's true. Engineers never were given those ethics courses, right? It's just mostly in the business school. I don't know what to say on this. I just think we're tying our hands way too early. I knew that if I bring MIT to the table, you'll listen to me. All right, (laughs) Fred? I'll answer it slightly differently. Again, relying on maybe more of a future vision. So Greg makes an interesting point that, you know, right now the kinds of problems we're facing may be different than the ones we will ultimately face. What I think about is that every AI, before it gets its training data, is effectively, depending on the kind of AI we're talking about, so I should say it that way, depending on the kind of AI we're talking about, an AI starts as an infant. You know, that is, it has the ability to detect patterns, And in a sense, I don't know if that AI has ethics at that point in time. But what I worry about more is that we need to think about what it will learn as it starts to grow from being its infant AI into its adult AI, right? And we know that humans, many, don't get all the way to where we might want them to be on an ethical scale. And so I think that this is in some ways a developmental question. And what I really worry about more than anything is that we think about an AI this way, the AI is in some ways can be a mirror of humans. And when we see the AI as a mirror of us, we may not like some of what it is we see that that AI learns. And so the way I'd answer your question is I worry about ethics and I think we have to worry about it now. But really, it's not just an engineering question. It's a learning question. And that puts it in the realm of what I would call developmental science. I'm glad you brought that point because I wanted to ask the question from the perspective of a dynamic system. In a sense, you're looking at a loop that is over the lifetime almost of the AI. And this is where we start bifurcating from the traditional human-machine interaction, human-machine collaboration, when there's that intelligence that absorbs data, observes the human, it's designed to support, and as a result, changes and evolve and perhaps develop a new level of competency, maybe even knowledge about the world. What can we do today, especially as we look into the future, perhaps not with today's system that don't have perhaps that level of sophistication, one, to guarantee that the patient doesn't go into directions that are not under the control of of us, on the one hand. On the other hand, that we continue to co-evolve with the system, with the AI system. I want to take your developmental or your infant development analogy a step further in the sense that in the future, we're going to have perhaps an AI sitting on our desk or multiple AIs augmenting our work, and we're going to grow with them. What are some of the issues there that we should keep in mind? Yeah, interesting point. I'll tell you what I think in a second, but let me ask you a question. So you have a couple of children, and they are intelligent entities who are evolving, who you don't fully have control of. So what do you do? What are you doing? You love them, and you nurture them. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, and you trust and you trust them. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. But I'm using those terms very carefully because first it's true, but also what's the equivalent again for that other type of intelligence? Well, I love the answer you gave. So you started with that you love them. And at the risk of getting, you know, too crazy here, sorry, like we can think about what it might mean to quote unquote love your AI. I'm taking that to an extreme, but let's run with it for a moment because what I'm suggesting is that let's say you want an AI to learn to become an entity that operates with ethics. Part of the way that will happen is through social learning, and it will be watching you, it's human, in terms of how you behave. You know, it will be learning ethics, in a sense, based on that relationship. So the fact that you might treat your children with love and respect and empathy, even though within the AI world, we need to think about what love and empathy and respect is, I would argue that there will be correlates that will help us develop that AI in much the same way that we try to help our children develop. And the thing is that, you know, that's hard too. Sometimes development's a little bit wonky. Things happen in funny ways, go in different unexpected directions. But, you know, you try to support and interject and control in different ways over time. You made me think about a bunch of things right now, but I'm curious to see Greg's and Mike's reaction to these Developmental technology <laughs> <laughs> approach. Greg, you're the no kidding band metal engineer here. Yeah. So I have a couple of issues. And I think Fred is right conceptually, but practically, we're not in the same space to build systems like that. We have AI systems that need a million instances to learn something. And we as humans, we learn with two instances, maybe as two year olds. So there's a huge difference there. There's no causality in these things. They're not building causal models. These are perceptual models that are pattern recognition, demising over a cost function that someone told them, I want you to recognize cars or bicycles or whatever it is, and certainly not to be empathetic with your human teammate. And we don't even know how to build a metric like that. And then, by the way, if I need to do a million instances Danielle, I'm sure you'd be really happy to sit down for a million instances and say, well, that really hurt my feelings or that doesn't seem ethical to me or whatever. We don't know how to do that. Honestly, I worry about this deep learning neural net paradigm that everybody is building on going into yet another expert system like dead end that we saw in the 80s that really doesn't get to intelligence or teammate or all those things. I think causality, building up mental models of myself, of the world, of you, is really fundamental to being a good teammate and addressing these other issues that Fred's talking about. Over. Thank you, Greg. Mike, you want to chime in on this issue? I think Fred brings up a super interesting point that I'm going to take in a slightly different context. Most tools, you build the tool and then you use the tool. And there's a clean point where you, you know, you finish building the tool and from then on, you're not continuing to build the tool, you're using the tool. A child, right? You don't build a child. And at some point you say, okay, this kid is built. Now, you know, they're going to go, you're always, and they're always developing, learning, growing. And Danielle, exactly what you said, right? You love them. You mentor them. You develop them. And, you know, sometimes you let them make mistakes even if you know it's going to be a mistake, right? And the reason you do that is, you know, your job as a parent is not to make sure your child always makes the best decision. Your job as a parent is to create a positive, valuable person out in the world. And sometimes letting them make mistakes so they can learn, even though in the right now, it might be the wrong thing. In the ultimate goal, it's the right thing. And so AI, especially AI that learns, raises an interesting question, right? Is this something we're going to build? And then at some point, it's going to stop learning. And after that, we're going to use it. Or do we want AI systems that are continuously learning and growing like children do? And I think, you know, making a decision about that is going to be really important to determine how we should think about these systems. I love the way you guys circle that very complex question because I think it's pretty fundamental if we design system today to start even thinking about those topics, even if they are far in the future. 
My guess is that that future is going to come at us real fast once some AI is going to misbehave, so to speak, or behave outside the design parameter of the engineer who designed them. And people are going to start asking those questions. So I'm glad we're asking them first here on the podcast. I have one last question for each one of you. And it's really a request for advice. Our audience is probably wondering, especially the young people in our audience, the students and the folks that are still wondering about this field, how do I become like these three gentlemen? What can I do? I am starting my college right now. I am in graduate school, perhaps. What kind of disciplines, what kind of courses, what kind of classes can I do? What kind of choices even in my career can I do? to go into that field of human AI systems, which is an emerging field, or what some people call today human-centered AI. So we are asking you through you as the three wise men here to give some advice to folks in the audience about what they can do to grow and eventually succeed in this domain. Dr. Dietrich, Dr. Zacharias, Dr. Van Lent. I'll start. So the short answer is learn to code. The slightly longer answer and more inclusive answer is learn to create via computers, right? You know, whether it's learning one of the big programming languages or learning how to create HTML pages or high quality Excel spreadsheets, it doesn't matter, right? The point is, no matter what field you're going to go into, creating via a computer is going to be an asset. And I think, you know, we're shifting from that being, you know, a specialized field to that becoming a part of every field, right? You know, every kid, when they're growing up, they learn math, they learn how to write. And I think you need to add, you know, elements of creating on a computer to that. And that's important, not just because it's a thing you need to know, but once you understand how what you're seeing on a computer was created, it demystifies and opens you up to a whole new world about thinking about that technology. So I've had the experience with my children of, you know, they learn a little bit of HTML, they write their first web page, and then they go to another web page and they're like, wait a minute, this is created the exact same way. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, it's not magic. So learning how to create via and on a computer, I think is just a really important thing that everyone should spend some time on. Wonderful advice. Thank you, Mike. Fred? So I agree with Mike. That's where the 90% of the creation is going to happen, right? It's on a machine. That's the implementation. I also think from my own background, I think a systems engineering view of the world, you know, where you draw little block diagrams, this is connected to this, and those kinds of that ability to dissect the world into subcomponents and then look at their interactions, whether you come from a mechanical engineering, double E, arrow, whatever. That's helped me a whole bunch because I've obviously been, I've diagrammed human systems with those blocks and I've gotten lots of feedback, both positive and negative, right? And then I think the third thing was I took almost every single behavioral psych course that MIT had to offer, which was probably three, and read a lot. I basically did an experimental psych PhD. I didn't know it was that at the time, but it was. Saw all the issues and problems and difficulty in doing that. And someone said, oh, it looks like you're going over to the dark side, you know, from engineering into site, which I've loved ever since, you know. So I think those three areas, I think, is, is what I've kind of built my own life on. Over. Thank you. And representing the dark side, Fred. Speaking for the dark side, yeah, very interesting points. You know, I certainly agree that, you know, some of the fundamental skills that were just addressed are essential starting points. But I'm also reminded of... There was a very famous psychologist named Carl Rogers. He did a lot of influential writing. The stuff I'm thinking about was from the late 1960s. And he gave a lecture, or wrote a paper, I forget what it was, where he talked about his fear of what was happening with graduate programs in psychology at the time. What he said, essentially, was that he worried that, well, methodology and quantitative skills are very, very important. Psychology programs were making the mistake at the time for not deliberately selecting for and emphasizing in their programs creativity. So what I would add is that I agree that the fundamental skills are very essential, but I would also encourage folks to find an educational program, whatever it is, whatever discipline it is, that not only gives you those building blocks, which you have to have, 
but that puts you in an environment that actually facilitates creativity. And if you do that, you know, I think that some really pretty wonderful things can happen that in the end may be far less important than whatever discipline it is you choose to study, say, especially as an undergraduate. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much. I'm sure our audience will listen to it and apply it in their own lives. Thank you so much, Mike, Greg, and Fred, for a really very interesting conversation that took some directions that were unexpected at some point. I'm sure that the audience will enjoy basically the breadth of experiences and even language that you use here to describe this field. Thank you for listening to MindWorks. This is Danielle Serfati. Please join me again for the next episode. We welcome your comments and feedback, as well as your suggestions for future topics and guests. We love to hear from you. You can tweet us at MindWorks Podcast or email us at mindworkspodcast at gmail.com. MindWorks is a production of Aptima Incorporated. My executive producer is Ms. Deborah McNeely, and my audio editor is Ms. Lindsay Howland. To learn more and to find links mentioned in this episode, please visit aptima.com slash mindworks. Thank you.